0: Welcome to Talk Racing To Me, show 48. I'm your host, as always, Naomi Tucker, and so pleased to be bringing you quite the guest this week. Eight-time Broadcaster of the Year, Nick Luck, graciously gave us some of his time to go over everything going on in Europe, as well as his upcoming engagements in the USA, we covered the start of the European flat season, the guineas coming up, the jumps finale, Rachel Blackbore making history, perhaps uh, some more tragic reflections on the late Roy Rocket and the late Lorna Brooke, and also, slightly different... Who is Nick Luck? We go into his lengthy experience as a broadcaster, some unknown facts about Nick. So if you listen to Nick Luck daily or any of his other shows or watch him regularly on TV, they say uh, you might enjoy this. I'll put in the uh, eventual time code for when that starts in the description of the show. So do check it out. Nick, this is the first time you're appearing on Talk Racing to me. Of course, most listeners or most people familiar with the In Money Media Network uh, know you from your own show and a frequent guest on, on the Players Podcast. Whenever there's anything European related to talk about, you're the man to call. How are you doing today? Where, where where can we find you at present?
1: Well, Naomi, I'm at home in Teddington in southwest London, uh, just not far from the River Thames. It's a beautiful, sunny spring day. Normally today I would be at Epsom for their first meeting of the year which is their traditional blue ribbons derby trial meeting it's one of the few days of the year which I always mark out as a bit of a busman's holiday so I'll always go because it's only eight ten miles away always gets me in the mood to to anticipate the the classics and the derby but sadly obviously you can only go if you're working and I'm not working there today so uh, I am I am at home which leaves me some time to talk to you which is lovely
0: Lovely indeed. How come you're not working? A man as busy as you, I could have imagined well, that they found five different jobs for you to do.
1: I, I, I am kind of always working, like we all are in this in this business. But it's it's is it work? I don't know. We're all, we're always um, gainfully employed in some way, anyway, or gainfully deployed. So uh, I'm 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 just happy to have completed today's daily podcast and um, got a few other bits and pieces to do. Far too mundane and boring to to. Um, bang on about here, but uh, very ha- very happy to be chatting.
0: Yeah, very happy. indeed. I saw that you put out your daily podcast today, and you got the chance to speak to Joseph O'Brien on Thunder Moon, the Group One Vincent O'Brien winner. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, Joseph was on this morning, which was which was great. We've been talking a lot in the last ten days or so about the build up to the first Classics in Europe, as as you obviously have in in the US, but. Uh, The 2000 Guineas traditionally falls on the same day as the Kentucky Derby. It's nearly always on on the first Saturday in May. And uh, whilst for some of us that means we can't split ourselves in two, it it represents a a great early season transatlantic doubleheader. And um, because I've spent quite a bit of time talking about the key trials for that race in the last couple of weeks, we also needed to take stock of the horses who won't trial and we'll just go straight to the race. And one of those is Thundermoon, who was... One of the outstanding juvenile colts in, in Europe last year. So getting Joseph's thoughts on that was was a key priority. And he's he's a horse with so much speed. The question really is whether he'll get the the mile at Newmarket. But the sunny weather in, in England at the moment will certainly help him because he wants the ground as fast as possible.
0: What were Joseph's thoughts on him uh, getting the mile?
1: He seems quite confident. He's got a couple of relations who stay quite well. He's out of a mare by Sadler's Wells. And he's he's Zoffany, who who shook Frankel up a little bit in the St. James's Palace. So I think on pedigree, he's got every chance of of staying the trip. He just showed such explosive speed when he won the national stakes and then looked to fall short of stamina when third in the Dewhurst. But the ground was soft on that occasion. And he'd had a a trip to Paris the previous week where he was supposed to run in the Pri Jean-Luc Lagardère. And you'll remember the O'Brien horses had to be taken out because of the contaminated feed. Mm-hmm last year so he ended up having to run in the Dewhurst a a week later so he traveled twice away from home in the space of a week and I think you could make valid excuses that he wasn't at his best that day so I'd be I'd be pretty confident that of the horses that ran in the big group ones last back end that he'd come out the best it's just a question of whether any of the European horses can improve past him you know the Godolphin horses, one ruler and master of the seas Um, maybe Chinder who won at the weekend but I think he's got a bit more to find
0: what about uh, other O'Brien horses? Of course, his father, strong-handed as well. I am wondering, do we know anything about Battleground actually going to the 2000 Guineas? Or is there a possibility of a U.S. campaign for him?
1: I, I, would, I wouldn't have thought a U.S. campaign would be a priority for him at this stage. I'd say they'd, they'd want to have their eyes on a on a European classic first. Uh, he's a massive horse battleground. They, there was a picture released of Aidan O'Brien standing upside him the other day, and I mean, Aidan's—he's a, a short-ish guy. How tall is new- he? I
0: don't actually know how uh, tall he is. Not
1: that small. He's probably about five eight, I'd say, five nine, maybe. I, he's not—he's not that short. And and he honestly, he—he he was dwarfed by this horse. He, he's massive battleground. Um, I'll be very interested to see how he gets on. Uh, whether the undulations of Newmarket would be ideal for him, I don't know. But he's won at Goodwood um, midway through his two-year-old season, so, and he's See. been around the he's been around the bends in um, in Kentucky. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he's he's had a bit of schooling in in terms of you know, unconventional tests relative to his physique.
0: Yeah, of course, so first he, he, four out of Found as well, a pre-delighted tri- Triumph heroine and. Breeder's Cup Turf winner. Uh, this is a horse I love, and I've felt so lucky to see him uh, at Keeneland. St. Mark's Basilica, currently the favourite uh, Group One Darley Dewhurst winner. What are your thoughts on him?
1: Well, he's bred for it, isn't he? Because he's a he's a half brother to to Magna Grisha, who won the Guineas. So he's bred to do it, and uh, yeah, he 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 was a very likable winner of the of the two thousand Guineas. It's funny because. There were three of us in a room the other day, and we all had different views on who'd come out best out of that race. Some somebody said St. Mark's Basilica, the obvious one, obviously because he won. Uh, somebody else said Wembley because he was trapped a bit deeper on the track, the runner-up, and I said the Thunder Moon. So cause, just because I thought he had the most class uh, and the most pace, and I think that's what you need. So uh, it, it'll be it'll be really interesting, but it's unusual because we we've, we've become accustomed, particularly with horses from the Aidan O'Brien stable. For a, a horse to finish off the season being crowned European Champion Juvenile and then go into winter court as a very short price favourite for the Guineas, well, either it works out or it doesn't. But this year the whole race has got a much more open look to it, so, um, so I think it makes it a, makes it, certainly makes it a better betting race, and and possibly makes it a more intriguing race.
0: Yeah, an absolute treat for everyone uh, wanting to watch. And you highlighted it so accurately. That day is an absolute showcase of three-year-old talent uh, across the jurisdictions in Kentucky uh, for the Kentucky Derby. And of course, as you said, the 2000 Guineas as well. For people in Australia, I was about to say, in America, how would they be able to tune in to watch the 2000 Guineas on the morning of the Kentucky Derby?
1: It's a very good question. I presume you'll be able to see it on TVG. I would guess, um, although I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing. You can see most UK racing, can't you, early in the morning?
0: Yeah, I do believe so. I, I was going to give them the tip of uh, Dubai Racing Channel, who always takes, I think, the racing TV feed. I'm not yeah, 100% I'm, I'm sure on that.
1: I'm sure that's right. I mean, if Dubai Racing channel would would almost certainly be showing it yeah
0: that's always my Um, go-to on your phone google dubai racing channel you come to some kind of website called squiggly (laughs) and you're able to watch everything so anyone wanting to tune in but let's talk about your plans coming up Uh, you will actually be stateside instead of uh, attending the 2000 guineas and being able to return once again to your family at nbc sports
1: This is the plan. This is the plan. Yes, I'm supposed to be flying on Monday uh, to come to Kentucky for the Derby, which will be a real treat because obviously with the COVID restrictions last year, I wasn't able to make it until Breeders' Cup. And then there was a period during the winter where I thought how on earth did I manage to get to the Breeders' Cup? But thankfully I did because it's that exemption that's then enabled me to, to get to the Derby. So I'm very happy to to be on the team again and um, really grateful for for the support of, of everybody at NBC to to get me over. So uh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I, I feel a little bit rusty, uh, but um, they'll, they'll knock that out of me after a couple of days.
0: I'm sure they will. Well, I do hope that you're able to get there because I, I know that the restrictions are very tight at present in Europe. I haven't been home in about 16 months. So, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. Let's how are you
1: how 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 are you finding it? Have, do you just do you just feel like you're American now, so it doesn't matter?
0: <laughs> no, I no. Um, I like it here. It feels like a second home. I feel very fortunate to have uh, good friends surrounding me. But it's hard not being able to go home. I think this is the longest I've ever gone in my entire life without returning to the Netherlands to visit uh, my oldest friends, my family. Because normally, like I've I've lived across the globe. I've lived in Australia. I've, I've done the Good orphan Flying Start. But I've always been able to go home in between. I've always had at least one stop a year that included the Netherlands. So these 15, 16 months, it, it's very odd and a little bit surreal, but not in a good way. So I, I'm not going to pretend that I'm like, yeah, all oh, happy out. I Don't miss my family. Of course, of course one does. I guess I'm very lucky to have a, a very supportive family uh, of what I do. So otherwise it might be a little bit tricky. Although at the beginning with the pandemic, it was hard because my mother was very concerned because none of us knew what was going on. Uh, my brother was in Canada, and he came back, he was doing a, an intern- externship there for his uh, degree in mechanical engineering. And he came back. So my mom was, hey, Naomi, it's all nice and well that you're in the United States, but how about you come back home, but in a more pressing way. So yeah, no, it's it's been it's been tricky, but I'm very lucky that they've been doing well. I hope your family has been doing well throughout all of it as well, Nick.
1: Well, fingers crossed, we're all okay at the moment, Naomi, which is uh, which is good. And um, yeah, it's it's been different, hasn't it? It's been different. I mean, no, two thousand and nineteen, I think I spent one hundred and forty nights away from home, wow. uh, between trips backwards and forwards across the Atlantic or to the Middle East or France or Ireland. And then last year, twenty twenty, I I yeah, you know, I didn't leave leave here from the end of february until until breeders cup time so it was it was very different i probably needed it i probably needed a bit of time to to remember who everybody was and to sort of reacquaint myself with uh, with what i needed to do here so yeah now in many ways whilst you know you, you certainly wouldn't have wished the last year to have taken place i think for for a lot of people they've been forced to take some positives out of it and if if reconnecting with your uh with your family and and you know understanding what life's really about and reconnecting with your your friends is is part of that then then so much the better really and and you know let's be let's be grateful for for what it has taught us about how uh how we are with each other as as well as uh ruining the fact that it's it's left us missing a lot of opportunities
0: Yeah, perhaps it was indeed a a good opportunity for us to realize what's truly important in life. And that is, you know, your health, the health of your friends and family and and being able to be there for them, because everyone felt awfully alone, uh, I dare say, being isolated and and quarantining and very strict measures. must admit now here in the US, there are a lot more lenient when it comes to those, you know, everything's starting to open back up. So I feel very fortunate that in a way, we're able to start seeing some of our friends again. We're able to at least get a little bit of comfort uh, from those social interactions, but we'll get back uh, to horse racing now. It's the start. It's kind of the start of the European flat season. It seems like the two jumps and flat overlaps uh, ever so slightly in Europe. When do we truly feel like the flat turf season really returns? Is it marked by the Guineas weekend in early May, but I'm assuming we're actually looking earlier than that.
1: Well, it kind of depends who you are really. If you're a, if you're an arch traditionalist, then you'll think that it started at, at, at Lincoln time toward the back end of March. If you're a, mm-hmm. a real neophyte, then you probably think that it starts on Guinea's Day because that's what British Champion Series would like you to subscribe to. Right. For me, I'm somewhere in between. For me, I'm somewhere in between. Really, I, I think this this week, this this last week that's just gone, where you get the Craven meeting at Newmarket, the first Newmarket fixture of the year, uh, three. Good days on nice ground with the sun shining, and then rolling into Newbury at the weekend, and then Epsom today. I think this last week it's a great time of year. It's all about hope and renewal, and the uh, idea that every time you could go racing, you might see a, a potential superstar. I mean, obviously you don't, but every time you go, you you might. That that's what I think is exciting about this time of year. And and for me, sort of mid mid to late April is when the is when the the season proper really really kicks into gear.
0: I don't burst anyone's bubble now. They're all superstars until proven otherwise, exactly. right?
1: Exactly that. Exactly
0: that. So, when would we coin the jump season officially over? Is that looking at that uh, at the sundown celebration chase this weekend, or when yeah. does that kind of end?
1: Yeah, they they put a button on that a few years ago and decided that the season would end that day uh, in the UK, which which sort of made sense, really. The, the complication subsequently is that sometimes Punchestown, which is the great festival in Ireland, sits just after it, as it does this year, which which makes life a little bit complicated. But um, but yeah, broadly speaking, within the next couple of weeks, any jumping that takes place after that until about uh, October is um, only meaningful if you either own the horses or you've had a bet. <laughs> Well, not I'm sure a lot of people
0: appreciate that, but I, yeah. I do know where you're coming from. It's a, it's obviously a different caliber of jump racing throughout the summer than yeah. throughout the winter. But that's the same with the flat racing in Europe, isn't it? If you look at the all-weather racing, it is significant for, for those involved and you have good features, but it's not the pinnacle.
1: No, it's not. But a lot of the racing now on the, on synthetic surfaces in the winter is quite good. And you you tend to get a lot of better horses now might break their maiden or have their first couple of runs on on the synthetic. I mean, John Gosden's a great fan of using it and so is Charlie Appleby. And they, there's so many opportunities for them now into November, December that they can... It's given them the opportunity to campaign horses slightly differently, you know, to, to get them on a race course, either, either wait and be patient and get them on a race course a little bit later than they'd be forced to if they felt they had to get a run into a two-year-old, for example, or get a, a horse on a race course a little earlier to try and prepare them, whereas they might not have been able to do that until the, the early part of their three-year-old season. So, yeah, it's it's provided provides a useful function in that respect. And, you know, in and of itself, there's some, there's some fairly decent racing on the all weather. But as you say, uh, I, the, the purists will enjoy the turf racing through the summer and the jump racing through the winter.
0: Well, we all we'll want to keep our eyes peeled to the maidens at Kempton whenever Gosden debuts run, right?
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, it's yeah, you know, good, nice, nice surface. You can see why he does it.
0: Yeah, he's done it very, very successfully indeed. Let's discuss a little bit the difference in the classic trail here in Europe in comparison to the USA, whereas in the USA, it's very sort of clear cut. You have all these uh, very well spaced out, laid out. There's something for everyone, prep races to go into the Kentucky Derby. Whereas here, when you're looking at horses being targeted towards the Guineas versus horses now... uh, going into the Blue Ribbon Trail, the Classic Trail, those Derby, uh, Derby, excuse me, I have to say this correctly, Derby prep races, it seems different. If if you're looking at these horses that are going to stay the mile and a half, are we necessarily going to see a horse that's targeting the guineas go back into the Derby once again? Because it seems as of recent times, it might be slightly sort of parallel paths and not necessarily overlapping anymore.
1: Um, I I think, I mean, people always say to you that the, the 2000 guineas is still the best derby trial. Yeah. I'm not sure I subscribe to that view. I think what they're trying to get at is that if a horse has got the sufficient class to be lining up in a, in a classic early in the season, then, you know, by by its very nature, it's more likely to be lining up in another one. Um, that said, one's at a mile and one's at a mile and a half. So I wouldn't necessarily say the guineas is, is the best, is the best derby trial, Um you know, some years it, it works out that horses from the Guineas go on. Other other years it works out that they they stay a mile, and that's often dictated by pedigree. If you get a strong staying miler who's by a stout influence for stamina, then you're naturally inclined and tempted to to have a crack at the Derby. Other times, your your decision is made before you even turn up in the Guineas, whether or not you win it. For example, the horse we started talking about a few moments ago, Thunder Moon. Were he to go and win the win the Guineas impressively, there is zero chance. That he would be campaigned toward the derby because mm-hmm. he's all about speed his stamina suggests that he might get a tick over a mile but not certainly wouldn't get a mile and a half um so it'd be very unlikely that he'd he'd end up there whereas you know if one of Aiden's slightly more stoutly bred horses rocked up and and won the race then it might be a it might be a different kettle of fish same with the godolphin horses the dubawi horses one or two of them have got a fair measure of stamina in their pedigree so if you know, if a horse like One Ruler, for example, came out and won the Derby, it wouldn't be beyond uh, the Guineas. It wouldn't be beyond the bounds of possibility they might think about throwing him into the Derby.
0: You know, it's a, it's a very interesting um, sort of concept to me, whereas in the USA, they're all looking at hopefully lining up in the Kentucky Derby. Now you see a, a fair few, well, not a fair few, but, a, you know, a couple horses that do have the points to get in, uh, bypassing the Kentucky Derby to a lineup fresh in the Preakness but looking back at some of the derby preps coming up this week you were saying it, you know get too you excited you start looking ahead at this you know very pivotal race in the UK racing calendar uh, do you want to give us some thoughts on possibly the blue ribbon trial coming up I do believe that is today did I already miss it or are we still on time here
1: you're, you're just I mean just, just another- on time another- right
0: probably going to be dated by the time we finish talking about it by the
1: time by the time you publish this is it'll it'll have been run i mean it's in it's in about 20 minutes oh dear i might be able to give you i might be able to give you a live commentary while we're still doing this (laughs) Um, it, it tends to be the first of what you would call the meaningful trials for the for the derby though though until fairly recently it was rather meaningless and then it became a it became a win and you're in so I'm not allowed to say that because Breeders' Cup have a patent on that name, but it came. It became an automatic qualifier for for the Derby, which is a rarity in in Europe that you get uh, concepts like that. Uh, but if you if you win now, you you get an automatic wildcard entry, so you don't have to have entered as a yearling. But anyway, that's academic. I hope Uncle Brin wins the race today, uh, and or has won the race today by the time you listen to this. He's an even money favorite for Frankie Dettori John and Jonathan Thady Gosden. He is owned and bred by Andrew Black, who founded Betfair. And Andrew, or Bert, as he's better known, he was on my podcast yesterday, Monday, talking about his passion for the race, his passion for breeding horses. And it's just great that someone who has chucked a lot of the money that they've hard-earned into into breeding thoroughbred horses should be rewarded with a horse who's a genuine uh, Derby candidate who isn't owned by Godolphin or Coolmore. Nothing against Godolphin or Coolmore, but yeah you know, the sport if it's going to thrive and survive needs more investors at the sort of level that Bert Black is investing so uh, i'm i'm very pleased for him that he's got a, a genuine contender he grew up very close to epsom his farm is very close to epsom epsom as a training center has been on the wane now for several decades and it would be wonderful for the area if this horse were to were to throw himself down as a as a meaningful contender i just think it would be a a good story and and sometimes it's difficult you know in in, in England for, for us to really sell the Derby in terms of the narrative mm-hmm. surrounding the horses in it. And that's because uh, it's it's been saved by Coolmore, the Derby, because they have invested so heavily in middle distance blood and produced all these brilliant horses. So on, on that to that end, it has been completely saved by their obsession with it. On the other hand, because they have so many of them, and because they can run seven, eight horses in the race, it's very difficult as a a member of the media to to sell the race as a race of uh, of really significant interest to a wider public, because there just aren't as many there aren't as many strands of human interest, um, or indeed equine interest, to to, to go at.
0: As a race, as a goal for an owner, would you would you say that owners nowadays rather win the two thousand guineas or still the Epsom Derby being well, no, the mean, pinnacle?
1: No, everyone. I mean, like I think everybody wants to win the wants to win the Derby, but I think there's almost become a, a resignation that unless you are one of the major superpowers and that your horse is with what you call now a super trainer, you you can't do that. Now I, I read a piece the other day in the the U.S. media. Bemoaning the fact that, you know, uh, the, the what you would call the super trainers in America are responsible for nearly half the field in the Kentucky Derby, mm-hmm. and that there might only be eleven or twelve trainers total represented in the race. Now, I'd be delighted if there were eleven trainers <laughs> represented at Epsom. So rare has that become, you know, we've become accustomed to the fact there might only be three or four. Uh, and, and maybe only two in Britain, or yeah. So, so I think sort of diversity of of people associated with the horses is actually quite is actually quite important on on a lot of levels.
0: Yeah, I do believe that as a trainer or anyone having an interest in, in running a horse in, in the Derby, you see this whole slew of beautifully bred, well prepared O'Brien horses, even if it's Joseph O'Brien or Aidan O'Brien, and that that is intimidating. And and these horses win all, you know, a, a lot of the significant prep races left, right and center. And not to forget that Aiden O'Brien at Balladour has that um, reversed camber bend kind of replicated as a training center, allowing his youngsters to get to know the course in a way that most people don't have access to. And Some might say that's an unfair advantage. Some might say, well, he's a genius and he knows exactly what he's doing. But we'll move on to some other uh, topics that I really wanted to discuss with you. Of course, we can't leave this podcast without talking about Rachel Blackmore, who has been making history left, right and center. Her Grand National win on Manila Times for Henry de Bromhead, first ever female rider to win the Grand National. I know that there's been a lot of talk about Why do we keep coining the term female rider? Why do we have to say it? I guess because it hadn't been done before. So in that way, it is a novelty. But you had a podcast titled, How Did Rachel Change the Game? I thought that was very accurate. How did she change the game?
1: I think by her undoubted ability would be the the first and obvious starting point. Uh, She's just very talented. Um, so you've got to be good in order to be in a position to change the game. Um, then by her determination, because it, it, she wasn't an overnight success, it took a while for people to wise up to how good she was, possibly and quite probably because, uh, she's female and it, it, it still is the case or still certainly was the case three or four years ago that you are unlikely to get an opportunity as readily as would be the case were you male. And, and, you know, people would say that, that, that still is the case, but an opportunity was granted her to ride horses of a significant caliber. And she has seized that opportunity and the stars aligned to put her and and Henry de Bromhead together at, at just the right time. While his stable was upwardly mobile and she was really starting to find her feet as a rider and uh, yeah as i say it's talent first determination next and opportunity coming along at the right time and and that's how she's that how that's how she's raised the bar that's how she's um she's broken records and and made history
0: she took the title of leading rider at Cheltenham and i must admit just watching her ride to me She's absolutely fearless. Fires horses into jump. Sees strides everywhere. Knows how to kind of nurse a horse. I, I think I saw a jockey a jockey cam snippet that she was turning a horse's head in to really allow them to get a good look at their opponent before clearing away. way. What do you think about her riding style that sets her apart?
1: Well, she she looks perfect on a horse, doesn't she? She mm-hmm. you know biomechanically everything seems to work. And okay. somebody once said it about about a a sports person or any athlete, if they, if they, if they look good, they probably are good. She's, you watch her. She just, she looks, she looks great on a horse, just in, in perfect rhythm with, with the, with the animal. And it just seems to have all the time in the world. Another, another um, measure of a, of a top class sports person that they seem to have all the time in the world, even though you have to make split second decisions. Same with the, the best motor racing drivers or the best tennis players. Things are happening at a speed that most of us can't even comprehend that would just pass us by without us even being able to to, to make any kind of decision, let alone the right one. But the, the very best sports people seem to have all the time in the world to make that decision. And that's what always strikes me. She's got great coolness, great timing, great tactical acumen, great judgment of pace.
0: Which is a testament to her experience and, and her development over the years. As you mentioned, it, it wasn't an overnight success. And I find it really interesting how, how you're talking about the great athletes having a lot of time. And I do feel like as a, a rider, uh, m- my very limited experience as an exercise rider, but once I got very uh, adept at judging the times back in Australia running fast work, I remember that half a second took forever. And and it was like you had all the time, and you will you can look around you, see where's your working partner, what are you doing, which marker are you at, and still have plenty of time to then execute those decisions. So I thought it was very intriguing that you mentioned that, and clearly, um, Rachel Blackmore has perfected that and and really allowed herself to get to that state of uh, I don't I don't think actualization is the right word there, but flow. I, I guess athletes when they're at the pinnacle of what they're doing they have a certain flow state and I do believe that what you just described kind of um, represents that. We'll get on to another subject that has been, you know, in the news, perhaps a more sad subject to talk about, but also one that is, you know, a wonderful story and a horse that isn't a group or a grade one winner, but still captured the hearts and attention of plenty of people in Europe and across the world. Uh, I heard of World Record a couple of years ago. And I'd love for you to kind of sum up what made him so special. He was a flat Special Achievement Award winner, Brighton legend, uh, bred, part owned and trained uh, by John Berry. And unfortunately, uh, he's no longer with us.
1: Yeah, this is a a horse who was never the greatest in terms of his his ability. But somehow managed to capture the hearts of an awful lot of racing fans with somewhat more intangible qualities. But for a start he he was he was a a very easy to spot grey, almost white grey by the end of his his career. He was as you say a specialist at Brighton an idiosyncratic switchback track which generally caters to low grade horses. He uh was bred owned Trained and ridden every day by the same man, who's a very popular figure in in Newmarket, does things his own way. Uh, has a in 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 a, in a town where everything is about conformity and everyone looking exactly the same with their horses turned out immaculately and their rugs all put on the same way. And there's a certain sort of military feel about the way that the strings are, are released out onto the heath when you see sort of john berry's stable which is a bit more um you know at one with at one with the elements if you like or at one with nature and and john riding out in his wellington boots it's it's quite it's quite an endearing counterpoint to the formality and rigidity of uh, of what goes on with the other thousands of horses in in newmarket so for, you know for all those reasons uh, the horse was was a, a very popular popular figure just like his trainer who's a yeah who's 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 a very easy easy guy to to warm to and um and a very sort of erudite observer of the game as well as his as his blogs will tell you. So uh, yeah, there were there was lo- a lot about this horse that that made him very popular and it, it was a, a great sadness that he should he should have died on the gallops last week.
0: Yeah, he ran 31 times at Brighton, nine wins, two seconds and six third places. And I love that you mentioned uh, John Barry's Wellington boots, because that's kind of the first thing that catches your eye. He's just, you know, enjoying life, riding out his horses. I got the pleasure to uh, come across him on the gallops a couple of times when I was riding out for Godolphin during the Flying Start program. And certainly a character that is very hard to miss, indeed, very different Looking from from all the you know very formal, well turned out, it's it's kind of like a, a beautiful natural way of training horses. It seems that like, uh, reading um, his wife's blog post about Roy Rocket as well, just a, a very sort of. Horses are like his sons to him, sons and daughters, and really allow them to to grow into themselves and and do whatever is needed. So yeah, Roy Rocket, very special story. And as you mentioned, the fact that he's a striking grey helped as well. And and his running style, he used to come from behind and kind of try to get there in the nick of time, which also for a lot of people watching, that's a fair bit of excitement, uh, wondering if he's going to get there or not. But I also wanted to highlight uh, the difference uh, in handicapping races versus claiming races in the UK and the United States. Because if you look at a horse like this being campaigned at these class six, class five level handicaps, it, I don't know or don't believe this could have been possible in the United States. Because if he's campaigning in these claiming races, there is always the risk of him being claimed. So uh, I'm not trying to diss, you know, saying handicapping is better than claiming, but certainly there are differences. And do you think that the system of of the way the races are conducted in the UK really allowed for a horse like this to flourish?
1: I think there are ups and downsides of both systems. Um, I used to be a a big advocate of of the claiming system over the handicap system, if you're talking about low grade horses, because I thought it gave. More owners and more people connected with horses a better chance of a return, um, a a better chance of trading, a better chance of turning over, and a better chance of staying in the game. It, I thought it allowed more more trainers to run businesses that were viable, and to that end, you can see the upside of the of the claiming system. Now, clearly, the downside of the claiming system is that it is, um, it is not going to be as conducive to you know good practice and to and to you know, equine welfare as a system that doesn't allow horses to be moving barns every 5 seconds and you know as time's gone on i've i've come to believe that you know the the, the claiming system is sort of deeply problematic in that respect possibly as i've i've become more alive to to the the issues surrounding surrounding horse welfare than perhaps I was fifteen twenty years ago when I, when we weren't as uh, as tuned into that. So um, to that end, for all I think that it's it's a it's a better system in terms of keeping people's businesses going. It's it's probably got more more inherent flaws as regards the the well being of the animal. Uh, as far as the handicap system in in England is concerned, particularly it too is, is somewhat flawed okay horses don't change hands all the time and they generally unless they're moved by their owners, stay in the in the same in the same stable for longer periods of time if they if they're very low grade animals uh, having said that it's extremely difficult to find your category and a slot within which you can win on a regular basis i mean roy rocket was a an aberration Insofar as he was a low-grade horse who found his level and won fairly regularly, because he had a you know a specialism for an idiosyncratic track. Once you do win races at a low level in in the UK, it's very difficult to to carry on winning because the the handicapper will handicap you out of that grade. You will be pushed beyond a grade in which you can realistically win, and therefore that encourages connections to not do their best to to cheat the system by running horses not on their merits to try and get them back down the weight. You know, people think it's always for a bet or or for gambling purposes. It's not half the time. It's simply because people are trying to get their horses in a slot where they are actually capable of winning. So there is no incentive for you to stay um, in a grade that you can't cope with. So, you you know, rather than you wanting to a horse to run his heart out and finish fourth and not get any respite from the handicapper and be able to go back to a grade in which he can win, you'd rather the horse finished out the back so the handicapper drops him a few more pounds so you can be back down in the grade that you were in before so it is it is a fundamentally flawed system also in a in a in a country where we have um pretty pathetic prize money which we do at the moment and it's a major issue <clears throat> excuse me Naomi sorry You're all right in a country where you have pretty pathetic uh, prize money uh, and we do and it's a system that needs needs addressing significantly uh, to have a to have a, a system whereby, unless you have a, a, a stakes caliber horse, you have to run that horse three times so the handicapper can have a look at how good it is and then put it in the correct grade. You're wasting an awful lot of the owner's money hmm. in 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 research and development before you actually have a chance of any kind of return. Whereas in the states, you can just bang a horse straight in uh, for a certain for a certain price and having already categorized it yourself at home.
0: Yeah, you can decide what level you think they're at.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Now, it's not that you don't have a good idea here. You do, but you don't have the option to say, "Right, I think this is a five thousand dollar claimer. Let's get it straight in." You know, unless you've got a, Unless you've got a, a a stakes caliber horse, you don't want to be winning first time for a starter, because if you do, you'll be fighting a losing battle with a handicapper for the rest of your existence. Now, that can't be right, because you're disincentivizing success right from the outset. And how do you sell that concept to someone who is just getting into racehorse ownership? Guy comes along, has got fifty to a hundred grand, and says, "Buy me this horse." Great trainer trains it. Says, hmm, "It's a nice enough horse. It could be a could be borderline stakes class in due course." They want to get it through the handicap system in in order to in order to win a race, which means concealing its ability to us to a greater or lesser extent for three starts. Uh, <laughs> a that's wrong on an integrity level b it's yeah. wrong in terms of retaining the interest of said new participant to the sport you know why should we assume that anyone who just comes into the sport is aware of all its foibles and its vagaries and its smoke and mirrors and its it's the necessity to in some way hoodwink the system in order to get on it's just it's just and deeply anachronistic so there you are there you have it in a nutshell uh in terms of in terms of running a more more efficient industry the claiming system the category system of categorization in the us i think is better but with it there are i think there are welfare flaws
0: but in Where the are. in the same vein how do you sell to a prospective owner or you have an owner that has a couple of horses, that if you run your horse in the spot that you believe it can win in the United States, if you're looking at a claiming horse, that means you can lose the horse every single race.
1: Yeah. So that's the downside. So if you get someone who develops an attachment to a horse and they might lose that horse, then clearly that's a disincentive. But most people have a price at which they are prepared to part with said horse. So as long as that amount of money is a little greater than than that at which you realistically value your, your animal, then I don't think that's that difficult to sell to most owners.
0: No, that's true. But perhaps that it incentivizes someone to not get as attached to a horse whereas in a way aren't we always campaigning for people to really care about their runners and care about the horses they own also I'm going to talk very slowly so you might be able to have a, a glass of water because I can I can hear your I, you voice uh, but I,
1: I know I I having listened to the talk racing to me many times Naomi I know that you're rigorous with your editing process so that you'll be uh, you'll <laughs> I, be you can't, can't
0: make you sound different now can I <laughs>
1: You can you can you can nip out the fact that I've got a I've got a frog in my throat. <laughs> not now, not now. It's velvet larynx time again.
0: There. Okay. Um, but th- thank you so much, Nick, for that very elaborate description of the handicapping system in Europe. I mean, I I in-
1: called it long winded. You have generously called it elaborate.
0: Well, I thought it was very informative. So I think elaborate is a more accurate uh, way of putting it. As we'll talk about perhaps uh, another sadder topic Um, I'd love to hear your reflections on uh, the tragic passing of amateur jockey Lorna Brooke she passed away last Sunday after a a fall at Taunton I do believe it was a month or so ago fortunately for us this doesn't happen as often we we do see jockeys getting injured possibly life-changing injuries but truly you know, passing away due to a sustained injury on the racecourse isn't as commonplace, thankfully.
1: Yeah, I I knew of Lorna Brook re- reasonably well. I I didn't know her very well at all um, when I started out, and I was I was working a lot at some of the tracks uh, where she rode a lot, places like Ludlow and 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 Hereford. I would I would encounter her a little, and she was an an absolute. An absolutely immersed enthusiast for the sport. Uh, she was an amateur rider. She did pretty much everything herself. The horses that she rode were generally trained by her mother, Lady Susan Brooke. Uh, but Lorna, you'd see her, she'd be saddling herself, doing all the tack herself. Um, if she could have led the horse up herself, she would have done. But um, she was just incredibly dedicated. And in the true sense of the word amateur, she was doing it for the love of the game and yeah on on the occasions where she did ride winners and there were a few, yeah, she'd come in and she'd just be wreathed in smiles. And Lee had put it very well on my podcast this morning. He said, sometimes when, when somebody dies, you think, I wish I knew them. I wish I'd known them when you read the tributes. And I think that was very much the case with her. Um, she, she's hugely missed by everybody who, who knew her well. And it has really shaken, uh, the racing, um, the racing community to the core in, in the UK and particularly those who ride over jumps and particularly those who ride over jumps as amateurs is a very tight knit community. And I think it's really shaken, shaken them. And as as you also point out, and it's important to point this out as well, because we've, we've come a long way in terms of, of human and equine safety in the last couple of decades it, it, to lose a, a rider on, on a race course is, is mercifully pretty rare. Um, the last jockey in in Britain to be killed in action was Tom Halliday, uh, and I I was there that awful day at Market Raisin back in two thousand and five, um, and and we knew he died before the the race meeting had even finished. And uh, as you, when it does happen, it it is um, it's deeply shocking. It, it it really reminds you how dangerous a sport this is and when somebody's out there doing it for for your pleasure but but for their pleasure as well and for no real um financial incentive it um it sort of reinforces sort of what a special sport it is really as well um that that it can it can grip people in this way but it is as you know Naomi and you know better than me because you've ridden to a much higher level than I have it does hold within it you know inherent risks and has been said many times to the point where it's become a cliche. It's one of the only sports where you get followed around by an ambulance.
0: Yeah. Uh, Risks that we are all aware of, but are willing to take because we love the sport and we love riding thoroughbreds that much that in a way you kind of um, put it in the back of your mind. You try not to think about it too much. I'm a fervent believer that, if you're riding a thoroughbred and you start thinking about the risks you're taking, you're already losing because it takes away from the immense pleasure that it provides. As I know that you have a very busy schedule, but I'd love to for the listeners to get to know you a little bit better. We hear you on a daily basis with Nick Luck daily. But how much do people really know about you, aside from the fact that you're a very eloquent broadcaster? Who truly is Nick luck I'm hoping to at least uh, give the li- listeners some insight into that how long have you been broadcasting for Nick is it coming up to twenty years now
1: oh my word dead twenty years that actually makes makes me sound quite old um I nice yes I started on uh, at the races in two thousand and two so yeah it'll be nineteen years this October wow
0: I mean that that's nearly two decades without trying to age you too much here Nick well I'm very ha-
1: I'm very happy to age myself because <laughs> l- lest anyone thinks that you know I'm I'm very very old I am still only 42 so um, a bit like you Naomi started very young
0: <laughs> well uh, you do have a fast vastly more experience than I do I was trying to Look up which networks you've been a part of over the years. Now you have to correct me if I'm missing someone. I saw ESPN. I, I,
1: I've shut. I've shut down a few.
0: <laughs> Gosh, ESPN, NBC Sports, Racing UK, Channel Four. You've done the BBC equestrian coverage. You're with Racing TV. I'm sure I forgot a few. Who else?
1: Uh, just no. That just about covers it. <laughs> I think. Yeah, I start. I started with um with at the races in its first incarnation. So that was back in 2002. And then there was a bit of a split. It's very, very boring, but this is sort of seems to happen in every country in the world where you get multiple racing channels and they've all got sort of very diff- different sort of political objectives and had different relationships with various tracks and whatnot. Um, and and that, that ended in 2004. And then I went to Racing UK, which was, I suppose, in terms of its model, a bit like the old a bit like the old HR TV in, uh, in the US, insofar as it was like, wholly owned by the racetracks and still is, and, and then sort of d- developed into into Racecourse Media Group. And th- they were at the time produced by the same production company that made the the network show for, for Channel 4. So that's how I got my opportunity on Channel 4, really at a, at a pretty young age when I probably wasn't really ready for it. Um, but still, um, you know, you get one of those opportunities. You you try and take it as as best you can and um the the rest sort of followed on from there really And in, in terms of my involvement with racing in america i i'd worked in kentucky for a little bit when i left school so i was there for um eight nine months in sort of 96 seven and then went back to university and then that had sort of really developed my interest in american racing a bit like when you first went out there and sort of sort of fell in love with it it was not dissimilar for me and uh, having spent that time in kentucky so when i did start working in racing broadcasting i always had that that um that desire to to not just concentrate on racing in in the uk uh and i was very lucky that within a year of, of starting i got an opportunity to go back to my first breeders girl which was santa Anita in 2003 and do some work on the on what is now the players show that i know you worked on last year so uh, that's sort of really where my relationship with them started, and then when ESPN got the contract in 2006, I, I went to work for them, and and then NBC took me over again in, in 2012. So that's been a, a big part of my life, really, and a, and a sort of very important one for me. Um, certainly, you know, from a from an emotional and spiritual point of view, anyway. Um, and it, you know, change is as good as the rest; it keeps you fresh. So, so really, yeah, that's 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 where it all started, and that's how that's how I'm sort of familiar-ish to, to some of your audience as well as as well as people here
0: yeah I do believe if I'm thinking about networks that you haven't been with, I think ITV is missing out on you're not you not being there but that's my humble opinion there so if anyone from ITV is listening uh, I think you would yeah, make think, a phenomenal addition. I, I,
1: I, I think you might I think you might be up against it there now listen I mean when when uh when channel four finished their 32 years as, as 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 one of the network broadcasters back in 2016 you know the, the your contract given to a new network uh, and 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 by dint of the the fact that 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 the the, the rights holder has demanded a change the the the, the lessee is always going to say right well our starting point is new talent mm-hmm. um so so yeah i'm up to that to that extent my timing wasn't great I, in other respects, I've been incredibly lucky at certain points. I think that's just it. This job, it swings and roundabouts. Sometimes you you know you're the right side of of rights decisions and contracts changing and moving networks and that sort of thing. And sometimes you're you're just on the wrong side of it. It's there. There are very few people who are completely impervious to those changes and can just ride them all gloriously. So uh, I, I I think I'd say I'd say I've been I've been pretty lucky in the in the round.
0: It's probably part and parcel of the game, as you mentioned. And you've covered racing in Dubai, Bahrain, the United States, England. I do believe Ireland as well. I'm probably forgetting a few. Uh, which countries have you been active in as a broadcast? And what would have been possibly a standout experience for you?
1: Uh, yeah, all the ones you mentioned. So most of the countries in the Middle East and most European countries and and the US. I, I haven't really... Uh, been as much as I, I'd have liked to the, really the emerging or not the emerging is the wrong word but countries that have now emerged as global leaders um, really in the eastern hemisphere um, John Gosden said 15 years ago the future's in the east I think it, it already was Yeah, Japan, Australia, Hong Kong you, you only have to listen to to James Willoughby's slot on my show every Friday where he does his global rankings to know that the horses being produced in in Japan, especially now, but but also in in Australia and New Zealand, uh, are really are really right up there amongst the world's best. I mean, in Europe, we've always got a bit of a superiority complex about how great our horses are, but yeah, you know, the the sport is getting more global, and I'm I'm very grateful for it. And so, if you if you're asking where I'd like to have spent more time, definitely Australia and, and Japan would be two countries I'd I'd love to I'd love to do some more work in.
0: Japan is one for me as well. I was very lucky to be uh, an exercise writer in the marketing in Australia. So I, I kind of got uh, their culture and, and what they're doing there, which is absolutely phenomenal. I feel like they've figured out how to make racing attractive to the public, how to make it engaging for younger people. Uh, gosh, Australia is absolutely wonderful. Have you attended any of the racing carnivals there?
1: No, no, not, I mean, I've never been to Australia oh, in my no. life. I've not even set foot in the country, never mind being racing there. So uh, it's a it's a massive miss on my part, and uh, I've got to get it. I've got to get it done sooner rather than later. Uh, sadly, as we're talking, the aforesaid Uncle Brin has been turned over. Oh in no! The, in the blue ribboned Derby trial, and it's another success for Godolphin. Who've had a, an amazing week, Charlie Appleby, uh, with a cult by Kingman from a very stout German family of strong stayers. So that could be a that could be a derby contender, Virko, The horse is called.
0: Wow. Well, thank you, Nick. I, clearly, I'm not the one that has the racing TV on in the background here, and you do, and I'm very happy that you did. And wow, that's a, that's an interesting one. I'll have to watch that replay. And just to wrap, well, not really wrap things. So I've still got a couple more questions because, like I said, most people probably don't know you behind. Uh, you know, the very professional broadcaster, could you tell us something that most people might not be aware of, something that would make someone feel like they know you, even just a small part of you? <laughs> uh,
1: that's a very good question. Well, I I was once, uh, this is just something that will make people laugh, uh, I, I, I did once run the... <laughs> University of London Musical Theatre Society. There you are. There's a, there's a there's a bit of information that I don't normally share in interviews like
0: that. But so do you And it is actually play. It is instrument? actually
1: it is actually there where I met my wife who is a professional musician. Oh, she's a professional singer. Um and yeah. And so there you go. And that's why whenever you see me in these Zoom shots now, people make fun of the fact that I've got a drum kit in the background and a piano on my right. I can I can play neither the piano nor the drums. But uh, I do have a very, I do have a very musical family now.
0: So how come if you don't play an instrument, you were able to run the well, musical theatre? I did.
1: I did badly. Because I, I fancied myself as a bit of a, I fancied myself as a bit of a thespian when I was younger. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't ever think it was really on the cards as a career. But that, there is a photograph that you can find somewhere on the internet uh, of me uh, dressed up as a girl, um, playing, playing at the at the Globe Theatre uh, opposite Benedict Cumberbatch. So no way, way. So, um, so yeah, yeah, it is there somewhere. It is there somewhere. So yeah, that was that was when I was at school, 1994, I think it was. Um, and, and he was a year above me. And uh, yeah, yeah, I was uh, I was Kate to his Petruchio. So there you go. There's uh, another another little fascinating fact for you.
0: My god, I did not know this Nick. I did know that you uh, your family is musical as indeed the piano which has caught my eye on multiple occasions uh, would suggest. As for getting back to your sort of your your career trajectory, you've you've been crowned broadcaster of the year for I do believe an impeccable 8 times. What is still the goal for you with with the awards that you've won, the the incredible coverage you've provided? What still pr- gives you fulfillment as a presenter?
1: Um, I, I think if you're if you're taken out of your comfort zone and you're challenged and you're asked to do something that you haven't done before, then it always gives you a bigger buzz. I think really most of us are just adrenaline junkies. Um, in the same way that in, in the same way that, that jockeys are, but I'm just I guess like a like a sportsman that can't play sport. So <laughs> so I want I want the thrill, uh, but I, I you know I don't have any kind of physical coordination or any ability. So uh, but I can talk, okay. So I think I think live television is the is probably the nearest you you, you get to that. Certainly, that's what ex sportsmen have told me. That have transitioned to being TV analysts. When the red light goes on and somebody says "go," then they feel that that adrenaline rush. So I think any t- yeah, any time you are challenged by a new project or or a new show, then that is that is pretty fulfilling. Um, you know, I I think the way that the way the media has gone and it's so non-linear now, there isn't some ladder where you go, right, well, I'm a junior presenter on that. And then I end up hosting that. Then I present that. Then I get on the desk of this. And then I'm, you know, then I'm anchoring the whole of the Olympics coverage for BBC or NBC or something. I think, I think linear progression in in the media doesn't really work like that anymore because it's so sprawling and unwieldy and everyone's their own little cottage industry. And they're all, Mm -hmm. everyone's just trying to carve out lots of little different, different niches for themselves so I don't think you can be as teleological about it as as you used to be but I think you can keep challenging yourself I think you can keep learning I think you can keep doing better and um you know that's what that's what I I sort of try and do really and uh sometimes you're probably in danger of taking on a bit too much but I'd rather be I'd rather be crazy busy than than kicking my heels because yeah, you know, I think I need I think I need work in front of me to motivate me. I don't think I'm a I know I, I know I it sounds silly because I started a, a daily podcast and we're now on episode two hundred and whatever it is. And it That's quite something. It's quite relentless. <laughs> but on the on the other hand, I think I need I think I need projects like that to to keep me rolling along and keep my brain active and um you know, I I, I think I, I thrive on that rather than Long periods of inertia or inactivity. I think, um, I think I'd sort of struggle to keep me keep myself keep myself ticking over.
0: You certainly seem like being on the crazy busy end of the spectrum. Do you still get nervous when that red light does go on? Do you still have that those kind of jitters?
1: Sometimes I think, depending on what you're doing. I mean, I suspect I, you know, I, I think I think big shows you, big shows you 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 do. I mean, I think day to day. Not so much, but if it's a if it's a big show big audience um when it means a lot to other people, you don't want to let them down so y- you're bound to have a, a few more butterflies and I always think that it's it's good to have some nerves or n- nerves maybe it, it's good to have it's good to have that little tingle that little sensation of apprehension because I think it focuses you it focuses your mind a bit. If you're too relaxed and you're too casual, I think that's when you can, you can drop the ball or, or make a mistake. Um, and the other thing, of course, is that live television—you can prepare and you can prepare till you're blue in the face. What you can rarely do is completely script, because much of the theatre is, by its very nature, unscripted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that in in itself is going to that that sort of level of not being able to prepare completely is quite exciting because you you just have to be ready for anything
0: so you were saying a big show you still get you know that the excitement dare I say Kentucky Derby being one of them for NBC Sports
1: yeah yeah definitely I mean I always said it was the, the one the one I really wanted to be involved with and you know just to have any involvement in the in the network coverage of that as was was lovely in in 2019 and it, you know, it's it's fantastic to be to be asked back. It's just like unlike anything else. I mean, I, I I got lucky here as well in in as much as I got to 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 host four or five grand nationals for network, and and that was that was a big deal because it was a, it's a big national cultural event that you know it, it really is. Um, so that that was that was nerve wracking, but there's there's nothing quite like the derby. I, I, just, just the intensity of that experience is is just quite different.
0: Yeah, it's quite special. I've only attended in person once. Uh, Justifies year it was pouring down. Well, you,
1: you chose a good year for it. Yeah,
0: it was, well, uh, I did because then I attended the Belmont Stakes uh, when I was uh, doing my placement with Amy Zimmerman, NBC Sports, and at Santa Anita, and then I saw a Triple Crown winner in the first time I attended Belmont. So I, I feel like I got quite lucky there. I, I really feel like it meant something, possibly also a reason I ended up back in the US because of that entire sort of summer experience. Penultimate question. Mm. If you'd be able to go back 20 years at the start of your career and, and visit your old self, what would you give yourself as advice moving forward?
1: Oh, 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 oh what wouldn't I give myself? Oh, <laughs> oh my word. Um... I I think I tell myself not to be so impatient. You know, I was always I I always wanted the next big gig to be just around the corner and sometimes you do have to just wait a little bit um for your opportunities. Uh so I I definitely say that. Um yeah, just probably just to play it a bit cooler, I think. Um but I, I don't know. I uh, Listen, you can't, you can't. I'm not, I'm not a great, I'm really not a great one for looking back. I, I'm really not. I, I tend to be A, quite an optimistic person and B, not one for too many regrets.
0: No, I don't think it's about regrets. It's more, you know, if there was anything that would have made your life easier knowing it back then.
1: Um, yeah, I think, I, I think that's it. I think not to try and chase too much. Um, it, it's one thing to be, it, it's one thing to, to be ambitious and to want more but yeah if you if you focus if you focus first on trying to do a good job then i think everything else falls into place
0: that's a very good advice last question how can the listeners connect with you online of course nick luck daily podcast but also social media
1: far too much i think is the answer <laughs> <to that question>. <laughs> 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 yeah they get plenty of me naomi i they <laughs> It definitely don't want any more. Yeah, I, I, I'm on Twitter at Nick Lucky. Pretty easy to find. Um, and yeah, the podcast is every weekday. I try and post it sort of around about 10, 10.30 UK time. And if I remember, I will try and post it on In The Money Media as well. And uh, otherwise I get into trouble from Pete and JK. And uh, yeah, that's that's pretty much the size of it. And I'm probably coming to a screen sooner than you want.
0: Nick, thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure having you on Talk Racing to me.
1: Always good to talk to you, Naomi. Take care.
0: Well, you truly are up to date now with everything going on in Europe. and A little bit of uh, American information too. But if you are looking at betting the Kentucky Derby, Kentucky Oaks, as of course you ought to be, Check out the Monster Pod that just came out for the Oaks and the Derby Monster Pod on the In the Money Media Network that will be coming out, and of course, go back to my prior episode, Talk Racing to Me, Episode Forty Seven, with Lafitte Pinkeye the third, giving us all the information on every single possible runner. It is quite the feat. There, about an hour and a half long, but truly a lot to digest, and you'll feel like you have a good handle going into this year's uh, 147th, I do believe, Kentucky Derby. So happy to have had you with me once again this week. Tune in for next week, uh, Pimlico news starting as of today. I'm going to give you all the goods, all the insights, everything that you need to know. You'll stay up to date if you listen to Talk Racing to me.